Welcome to the Ed Alia Podcast, hosted by Peter Kranitz and Brad Davis. Each episode focuses on a concept that represents a fundamental issue in contemporary life, examining it through works of culture and philosophy that help us understand its impact and explain our present situation. Hello, this is Brad Davis. And Peter Kranitz. We are here today for our second episode of the Alia podcast and the first segment of a short series we will be doing. Uh, we're going to start a discussion of theory in the time of quarantine. This will probably be a four-part series where we try to understand how the coronavirus is affecting discourse in a few different realms. This episode will be an introduction of what we mean by all that, and we will have a little bit of time at the end to give an overview of the different realms of theory we will look at, namely accelerationism, post-liberalism, and reformism. So Brad, how about you get, start giving us a bit of an introduction as to what we're talking about with sort of the, uh, the problems that are being raised? So I think it's important sort of at, at the beginning of this discussion to come to an agreement about what it is that we're talking about, what, what, um, what America is a, a, as a government and as a regime. Uh, quite obviously, we, we're a liberal democracy, and people have a lot of different concepts of what that means. But the key parts that, that are interesting and really important to unpack is we are voter-driven. As that's, that's certainly a controversial thing from time to time as to how much our votes matter, uh, how, much, how much weight... Um, the, the that politicians give on, on the populace's opinions. But I, I think we'd be surprised with just how much influence popular opinion does have. And maybe not every time we go to the polls, but absolutely day in, day out, representatives, legislators are all using opinion polls and different letters written in the amount of communication they're getting to try and determine what decisions they should make effectively so that they can re get reelected on and on. Yeah. Uh, do, do you have any reference for how, uh, that is kind of playing out right now with, uh, coronavirus responses? Um, uh, you know, is, is Trump kind of running this as sort of re-election campaign, do you think, in a way? Are other people in politics doing that? Um, and then what about the primaries being held right now during the midst of this? Does that play into this at all? Yeah, I, I think uh, today when we're recording this has a great example that just came out. The um, acting secretary of the Navy uh, just resigned because of all of the uproar about um, comments he made about an aircraft carrier captain who he dismissed from command. And so while a naval secretary is certainly not someone we vote for, not a position we, we choose or have much influence in some aspects of the policy for, the perception of the position in public and the amount of uproar that caused forced his hand to resign. And, and who knows, it uh, could have been that he was asked from his superiors to resign or, or did it independently. But that certainly is popular opinion shaping, uh, shaping administrative decisions. And, and I do think it's true that Trump is using this as 
very much we are in the middle of his campaigning season um and on the democratic side that's seeming to sort of fade away and it's it's shocking how quiet it is i i think bernie is probably going to drop out of the race any day now uh but joe biden has been fairly silent and hasn't been getting much much coverage joe biden's been hiding in his anti-corona bunker he's been yeah uh he's i think he has a podcast now actually right um everyone's starting a podcast in quarantine (laughs) even joe biden's doing it we're clearly ahead of the curve here (laughs) but um the decisions that trump is making right now and is faced with making are certainly influenced by his hopes of re-election and trying to uh, appeal to his constituencies. And uh, to that extent, you know, popular opinion does matter. And they're absolutely polling different decisions that could be made, uh, different messaging, trying to figure out whether they should uh, extend quarantine as far as, far as possible or keep waiting before any extension. I, I think uh, individuals have a big role to play in this. Uh, but also, because our opinions matter so much to politicians, the business of influencing our opinions is also a very big one. And so um, messaging and the way different news media are, are covering this is certainly having impacts on, on uh, individuals and the political situation subsequently. Do you, do you have anything you'd like to say about, about journalism right now? Um, released uh, or that leaked or something that came from within the White House. Um, an advisor from uh, I, I'm butchering this. I don't actually remember exactly where where this, this some someone some health policy advisor uh, sent a memo to uh, to Trump uh, in January, I think, predicting up to two million deaths from the coronavirus, um, which was not information or a number that had been reported on because um, it was not a publicly available number um, and obviously was kept from the public, this this piece of information, um, due to how it would affect the public opinion. The, um, and I feel like it's changed the perception of the administration's response. So it's a very direct uh, example of, you know, media coverage or lack thereof and then uh, its, its emergence and how that impacts public opinion. See, I, I think I disagree a little bit, um, and, and maybe this is splitting hairs, and we actually agree on this. I mean, there there is constant media coverage on all things coronavirus. The the problem is the substance to it is is almost non-existent. You're right, just death numbers over and over again. 
but there there's constantly noise being generated just not much of a signal there within um and everyone's been bagging on them uh on twitter recently but Vox is a great example with going back and forth in various editorials and articles about what is safe, what isn't, contradicting themselves, journalists publishing one thing and then uh, personally talking about how that's insufficient uh, caution and concern for the crisis in front of us. Right. Yeah, I, I do agree with that. And I think that's that's more what I meant by, by saying there isn't any coverage. It's really just that there isn't any substantive coverage. There's so little actually being said. Yeah, um, and I think, you know, th- this has been an ongoing uh, discussion the last several years about how much foreign regimes influence our, our opinions here in this country, but the n- news would be the wrong word to say that the information or the comments coming uh, out of China and Russia directed to the American populace about uh how dangerous this is, how many people are dying in China, or what sort of things we need. Um, Both China and Russia have been trying to send supplies to as many Western countries as they can. And it it seems like they're very much fighting a a war in the media against the image we have of ourselves and our capabilities to respond to this. I mean, I I don't believe that China has ended uh the spread of the virus within their own borders but but to to say that they have and then to send us millions of masks uh pretending we need them more which maybe we do it's certainly a a a power move to be playing it in information conflict I I'm not sure. It, very minimal uh, exposure it has been recorded in Russia, which hopefully is the case for them. But it is like extraordinarily low. Yeah, I I don't know what what China is reporting in terms of deaths now, but for a while it was just several hundred. Maybe they got to a couple thousand of officially reported deaths in uh, Wuhan, but most independent reporting. Uh, the few journalists still who are in China and able to work uh, are estimating well over 40,000 just based on the number of bodies and morgues, the uh, number of grave sites, mass grave sites being dug up. It's, yeah, there, there's no way the numbers are, are accurate. contradict your information is kind of doing the opposite of their intention you know showing is more yeah untru- untrustworthy but anyways that's we digress <laughs> i mean do we i sort of it seems their aims in doing uh in acting in in, in that way is to make it look like the the american government is ineffective or incapable of dealing with this crisis of providing uh, the healthcare needed, of having uh, the medicine and uh, medical equipment required. 
And I think to that extent, I mean, both we are woefully unprepared in all those realms, but I think they are making that case even clearer. Yeah, I think that's that's true. Um, and I think that what uh, you know, some of the the people we're going to talk about and the things they've written about it point out is that a lot of the issues are uh, stemmed from policy decisions we've been making in the past decade or two that lead to things like medicine and masks and other personal protective equipment being manufactured overseas. So we can't even do it here, and uh, bureaucratic, uh, just. Uh, you know, the bureaucratic slogs of getting things like uh, vaccines and tests approved um, in the United States. Uh, it, I think you're right that the, those countries trying to, uh, quote unquote, step up and help um, and kind of give us the boost that we apparently need is evidence of uh, a lot of sort of the issues that we're going to be talking about going forward here. Yeah, so there, there's clearly been a lot of failures on the part of the American government, and not just American government, French, Spanish, Italian, British, uh, a lot of the West seems to be woefully unprepared um, for this crisis. Uh, and here in, in the United States, some some of the things that have been most shocking, uh, the CDC's monopoly on uh, producing tests and delaying uh, production of tests, and delaying allowing others to provide tests until the point where when the CDC was pr finally prepared to ship out their own, it came out that they were ineffective and, and not uh, not working tests. So m at least a month and a half uh, lost in terms of production for those. Uh, the back and forth uh, directives on whether masks, uh, wearing masks would be good for the average person walking around um and i mean no shit a a virus that spreads uh via coughing or sneezing wearing a mask is at the bare minimum going to marginally increase uh marginally decrease your likelihood of getting it uh but probably greatly decrease that likelihood and i i understand um it seems that sort of their discouragement of wearing masks might have been to try and keep as many of those as possible for healthcare workers, which is a fine goal, a laudable one. But there's a difference between asking people not to purchase medical grade equipment or even taking those off the market and saying, as a blanket statement, wearing masks is unnecessary and may increase the risk of infection. And then messaging elsewhere was just dismal. I mean, the the things Mayor Bill de Blasio in New York was 
the things he was saying <laughs> two weeks ago, encouraging people to go out to parades, go to the movie theaters, working out at the gym, as this virus was spreading, are insane. Tuesday where the virus was bad like it was like if you were expecting it was like a tornado or something that was going to hit on Tuesday morning you know it wasn't like it was just the something about the messaging of it being treated as more like a natural disaster than some sort of um invisible uh preventable pandemic was just mind-boggling when it it took time for even that to come out the um Whoever's in, in charge of public health in the city and the mayor, we're, we're encouraging people like well after this had spread into the U.S. and well after the damage in Italy was clearly visible to the world. They, they were encouraging people to go eat at Chinese restaurants and go to the Chinese uh, New Year parade because like you should just be out and about and celebrating as much as you can. And that that's crazy. Yeah, yeah, I there were a lot of things that should have been done three months ago to put us not where we are today. Um, it's upsetting. But I, I, I do think uh, that messaging and what you're saying about uh, everyone going out and spending their last uh, couple hours pre, pre um, shelter in place, lockdown, whatever it's called, um, spending that time out partying at bars gets to something else that is really important and I think is the core of, of the American political regime. And that is, first and foremost, our society values individual rights and liberties and has a deep, deep agnosticism on anything and everything else. And... Some people might uh, might have an aversion to me saying that and uh, think uh, perhaps that that's just uh, that's the Republican stance, uh, as much freedom as we can have on guns and the like. But uh, I, I think that is bipartisan, nonpartisan, as universal in American politics as possible is the concept of freedom for your identity and your absolute liberty and whether for conservatives that comes to uh freedom of religion freedom of speech and gun rights or whether it is for liberals protections of various identities various classes it's whoever you are you have the right to be that person the government can encroach on you or your views on the world and you should be allowed to consume whatever you want however you want, and as much as you want. And that uh, kind of mentality sends us out to, to bars uh, to show that we can prior to a pandemic, but that influences every aspect of American political life. So while I think it's accurate and true that that obsession with individual freedom, liberty, rights, and identity is core to, to American life, at this moment when we are all shut at home, uh, 
there's a rethinking going on, I think, among all of us, but certainly also among political leaders, political theorists, writers, commentators, activists, about what all these things mean when we're not necessarily in the community together as a whole, in a normal state of being, and also what and also how those characteristics might have influenced our incompetence in dealing with this crisis and with this crisis what opportunity does it present to maybe change some of these characteristics or to influence them one of the most prominent social theorists and critics of the 20th century Michel Foucault, who is very famous, particularly in leftist circles, for his critiques of uh, power and the way the state asserts itself in individuals' lives, wrote in perhaps his most famous book, Discipline and Punish, The Birth of a Prison, on what life is like in a state of emergency in a period where plague and sickness takes over a community. He writes, The plague-stricken town, traversed throughout with hierarchy, surveillance, observation, rioting, the town immobilized by the functioning of an extensive power that bears in a distinct way over all individual bodies, this is the utopia of the perfectly governed city. The plague, envisioned as a possibility at least, and I'll note, for us, a current reality, is the trial in the course of which one may define ideally the exercise of disciplinary power. In order to make rights and laws function according to pure theory, the jurists place themselves in imagination in the state of nature. In order to see perfect disciplines functioning, rulers dreamt of the state of plague. Underlying disciplinary pro projects, the image of the plague stands for all forms of confusion and disorder. Just as the image of the leper cut off from all human contact, underlies projects of exclusion. And what Foucault is getting at here very much is that this current state of being where the government exercises so much control of, over our lives and ordering us how to deal with this, and we as individuals have such limited control both of our functionings in society and of our own bodies and health and every aspect of our life, this provides a great opportunity for the state to rework itself, to extend its power, expand its surveillance, and try to perhaps change the course of people's lives or create a utopia from itself. Right. Foucault seems like he's also saying, too, that this is the ideal form for a state apparatus, right? It's basically a state without people at this point. Um, the, the government can... Uh, function more or less outside of the, you know, the annoying reality of having to have human beings who live under the regime in a way. Everyone's locked up um, and in fear already. Yeah, yeah. And so the, the control that's exerted over us by the government is theoretically infinite at this point. And so this provides sort of the canvas that a lot of the different critiques uh, we'll be discussing, uh, used to develop their theories of government. And it is so pressing right now because this seems to be the 
generational opportunity for real change to develop in American political life. Which, um, the, that sense certainly started with the election of Donald Trump, that new realms of possibility were open within politics, and that Bernie Sanders has been contributing to of being able to really change how we view economics in this country. But with the plague, it seems all bets might be off and real fundamental change of our political life may begin to occur. I think it'd be impossible for it not to. And I think that anybody thinking that it won't, there won't be some kind of radical change in uh, the political and social orders going forward uh, is deluding themselves, which um, for uh, me as a Democrat makes someone like Joe Biden incredibly frustrating an embodiment of the the return to the old normal that just seems yeah. impossible and unrealistic, especially given the, the current uh, virus situation. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like there is going to be no return to normal. And so what this new state or new normalcy, whatever it may be that comes, is up for grabs. And so the first thinker we'd like to give a brief overview of is, um, or the first theory we'd like to give a brief overview of is the Schmidian uh, concept of political power and, and his critique. So some of you may have listened to our last episode where we were discussing Giorgio Agamben's essays discussing coronavirus, and Agamben very much draws on the work of Carl Schmidt in trying to understand political life and the and regime governance. So Carl Schmidt um, is a very controversial figure. He was a scholar in Germany, uh, an academic and a, a judge who was very interested in, in theories of power and governance. Immediately preceding the rise of the Nazi party in Germany. And as Hitler came to take power, Carl Schmitt helped provide many of the legal arguments that provided some sort of glossing of a, a way in which the new regime would be legal and politically palatable. So obviously... Carl Schmidt was very much not in vogue uh, for many, many years because he very much was the legal theorist uh, of Nazi Germany. His insights, nonetheless, are are important, and his rehabilitation might not be right, but the growing interest in his work, I think, largely stems from. Uh, more leftist scholars like Agamben trying to tackle and understand the way Schmidt describes the world. And the way he describes it is that fundamentally, the power to govern in a society is controlled by an entity that is the sovereign. The sovereign is the one who has the power to coerce all others to accept its political power. And the sovereign sets the rules of a society and establishes a code of law 
alongside the expectations of adjudication. So within our society, we know that if you are speeding and you get caught, you will get a ticket. There's a certain financial penalty set alongside the ticket. If you need to appeal to it, there's a very specific court and judge that will listen to your appeal and follow in a very strict procedure of how this goes. That is the norms that are set up originally by what Schmidt calls the sovereign. But the so- sovereign is also the political power which has the capacity to suspend the laws and rule extra legally according to whim. So, in cases of emergency or in wartime, perhaps the normal functioning of law is no longer acceptable or no longer prudent, efficient. For whatever reason, the sovereign is whoever or whatever is capable of foregoing the laws and making political decisions all by its own. So, so whoever uh, yeah. is there any sort of uh, guideline that uh, Schmidt or followers of Schmidt kind of lay out for when an acceptable use of that sovereign's power to uh, enact a state of exception is, or is it whenever the sovereign deems? It is necessary. It is therefore necessary. So that is the power of this concept uh, of the sovereign. They, being able to decide when it is an emergency, is the core of being able to decide how to treat an emergency. If you can decide on whatever whim, for whatever justification, reasonable or not, that there is an emergency, that is an extraordinary amount of power. And so for a thinker like perhaps Giorgio Agamben, the state of exception might be something to avoid and be fearful of. He talks about how following 9-11, President Bush and with this of Congress was able to put aside laws governing um, civil rights and protecting individuals from surveillance, particularly uh, uh, setting aside these protections for Muslim Americans and to surveil them or indefinitely hold them, place them in Guantanamo Bay without real legal rights. And so that's something to maybe be fearful of. But for Schmidt, one can decide uh, to enter a state of emergency, a state of exception, and forego the laws at whatever point. And that, that's the sovereign's power. And the sovereign is generally an individual who can decide that uh, without uh, a committee or without a approval. At some point, it probably does have to be an individual. And Schmidt talks about the reality we see of uh, democracies or other forms of government making decisions and laws um, in unison uh, and, and together. But at some point, there has to be the smallest agent that individually is able to take full control and plunge uh, a society into a state of emergency. And that, that would be the sovereign. So while there may be sovereign power within a democracy to create laws, whoever it is that ultimately can end that would be the sovereign. And whether that's a democratically elected president that 
president of the Senate or a general. It depends on who would have the most power at the moment to get to make the decision and to just do the action. It's not something that uh, needs to be determined by law or is formally uh, described. It is whoever in the moment has the power to do it. Cool. There's obvious problems that stem from sort of this concept of governance. And first and foremost, that is a protection of individual rights and liberties. Again, I made mention of um, the the surveillance of the Muslim community following 9-11. A great example of uh, President Obama having acted as a sovereign is uh, the decision to uh, target American citizens engaged in terrorism for assassination via drones. That That is something that was extra legal, was not approved by a judge. It was a decision at the moment that that was what was uh, in the country's best interest. And that is him acting outside of the law in a state of exception, acting as, as the sovereign. And so we're seeing some elements of this start to be applied here in the aftermath of uh, coronavirus. The Department of Justice and Attorney General uh, Bill Barr have been asking for the capacity to suspend courts uh, much more easily and, and suspend them much more widely, such that if you're someone uh, detained awaiting trial, if the court's suspended, you are effectively imprisoned indefinitely until the court uh, comes back or if the court never does. And so someone who um, might ordinarily be granted bail or might even be found very shortly, uh, might have been found very shortly to have been not guilty for whatever they're being held for, will now in perpetuity, or could in perpetuity, be held. And that that's obviously a, a misgiving of, of justice. Yeah, I feel like even uh, on a, a more wide scale, uh, someone like Agamben's kind of afraid that um, he was speaking in Italy, or uh, writing about in Italy about a month and a half ago at this point, the uh, idea of the citizens being reduced to to bare life, to being um, no more than human to exist rather than human to actually live and to can socialize and be out in the world and uh, live freely as humans ought to do. Um, so Agamben raising those fears a month and a half ago, uh, arguing that uh, something like a virus is not sufficient justification for that uh, the sovereign to flex their muscles in that way and order a lockdown or something. Uh, because of how much it uh, takes away those individual liberties from people. Yeah, and the general shelter-in-place laws that are being administered throughout the country, I think, might also represent a, a good example of the sovereign deciding on a state of exception. In that, I we'll we'll come to see. I'm sure cases will be raised after this is all done, but. How much legal justification is there for the government to force people to stay in their houses indefinitely? Uh, in L.A., uh, people are getting arrested for uh, surfing in the ocean or, or fined for uh, walking around when and where and as they're not supposed to. And it it seems uh, like there just is not much of a legal basis to say that you must be 
confined to your home unless you're driving to an essential job or are going to get some groceries or walking around the street to close every sort of business to to constrain people like that um i think it's absolutely necessary and a good thing in trying to deal with the virus but that is certainly a deprivation uh, of liberty yeah another slightly different perspective on this is that uh it's not so much about power and the exercise of power and violence that um, determines the, the government's response to, to crises like this, but more about class interests in the economy um, and how to keep the economy running and how to keep the uh, existing class structure in place. Uh, so, you know, uh, instead of caring so much about the the loss of human life that would happen if we all went outdoors or the loss of human liberties that happened if we stay indoors the bigger concern is about uh making sure that you know uh the corporations keep their doors open that people are able to still buy and sell things um we see that with the uh congressional bailout package that was what was it 3.4 trillion dollars is that right it's more something like that uh, three plus trillion dollars, uh, two thirds of which was given to major corporations to kind of keep their, uh, keep them going, and the you know trillions of dollars being injected into the stock market, um, with the intention of just kind of making sure that that is what keeps running. Um, yeah, we often uh, this is sort of hidden from our view a little bit, uh, just because we are so uh, immersed in this. Uh, hyper-capitalist landscape that we don't really notice it until it kind of stops functioning a little bit and we see how that impacts us directly you know people not being able to pay their bills being able to pay their rent or whatever um uh, but the government's concern is uh more about making sure the corporations keep uh keep going that the the larger shareholders in the economy are uh, still running unless that the individuals who can't pay their rents are are okay yeah and i think to to take this critique a little bit further not not only uh would some leftists say that class interest is driving politics like that but even more so that it is changing the way we conceptualize our lives and conceive of our own interests. The messaging that we see uh, in media through through movies that are really just uh, vehicles for investment, through television shows that are peppered with advertisements for products, to uh, magazines that exist to sell us lifestyles of a very certain sort all the media that we go through is pushing a narrative on us. And, and, uh, and we were talking earlier about uh, perhaps some of the misinformation or the poor communication of information that um, Vox was providing and other uh, news media sites. I mean, I... In just the most extreme example, I cannot imagine that the Washington Post doesn't hold back and 
decide not to run stories that over that are overly critical or, or damaging to the interests of Amazon and the and Jeff Bezos, their owner and, and uh, obviously Amazon's owner. Uh, and if news media isn't reliable, the extent to which media that uh, doesn't pretend to be uh, journalistic or neutral uh, is biased and ch- changing our perspectives towards capitalistic interests has to be even greater. Yeah, there's a little bit of an irony there, too, um, with what is everybody doing right now with their time? We're sitting in front of our TVs and on the Internet kind of consuming all of this media um, that, you know, often has that uh, either esoteric or overt uh, capitalistic messaging in it. Um, and the, the media creators themselves are getting no uh, no stimulus whatsoever. They're kind of being left to, to flounder while uh, a company like um, Amazon or, or Boeing or something like that is being being bailed out yeah um yeah and so well there's that generally right-wing uh critique uh and insight uh provided by by carl schmidt and likewise that by uh leftists uh particularly some of the media criticism uh, by by students of the Frankfurt School. There's also another criticism and insight uh, we're seeing very commonly, which is a more middle ground competency and complacency-based question, focusing on the specifics of the American regime and government um, being overly bureaucratic, uh, dragged down in administrative problems that cause stagnation um, and limit our ability to efficiently or effectively govern. We're seeing a lot of op-eds being written, extolling the virtues of Silicon Valley and startup-like governance, that the government should allow corporations to run point in sort of uh, trying to solve different aspects of the coronavirus uh, crisis. I, I think one of the most interesting um, and odd uh, pieces of this sort, um, the infamous Curtis Yarvin, who um, also has written as Mencius Moldbug, wrote a a long essay on his uh, Medium account talking about how really the best way to get through all this and um, to get past all these... Uh, government incompetencies is to literally hand uh, over the government to Silicon Valley executives and create sort of a a super agency of uh, smart technocrats that could govern us through this crisis uh, without giving any credence to uh, political concerns or even legalistic ones and simply try and maximize healthcare, maximize uh, production of uh, vaccines without having to follow the normal regulations uh, government agencies would have to. Um, although his his argument's a little out there. Yeah, well, one of the, the big things of people who take that uh, perspective and that uh, Yarvin talks about a lot too is that the problem is that our government is based around the, the will of the people, like we were talking about earlier, how much public opinion matters. Um, if you run the country like a startup 
uh, you could fire people who aren't doing their job well. You know, uh, the shareholders in the startup uh, can decide to replace the CEO if they seem incompetent, whereas we uh, can't really replace the president um, and our senators and Congress people are all concerned about re-election, about public opinion, and, you know, the other agencies are concerned with that. So it's part of the argument about running it like a private corporation. There's also a bit of an irony to to that argument um, in that part of the bureaucratic and uh, governmental inefficiencies with uh, a lot of the actual physical goods, uh, like I was reading today about the importing of masks from China, like we were talking about earlier, uh, turns out the vast majority of them aren't being imported directly to the government or being given directly to medical care facilities, but being purchased by private companies who are then auctioning them off to the highest bidder. Um, so even though these are coming in from China to America, uh, they're still not going directly to where they need to because these private corporations are, in fact, allowed to purchase them and then sell them off to whoever's the, to kind of profiteer off of uh, the, the need. Yeah, and that, that's, that brings us to sort of a divergence within this camp that's also present uh, in both the others. And that's sort of which way, uh, which way do, is the lane towards state capacity and, and state power in solving these problems. And so uh, certainly there are libertarians out there calling for this. I mean, I hope not too many of them and not being given too much of a platform, but calling for really this to be managed in that sort of way by corporations who are able to um, allocate masks based on pricing and whoever's willing to pay the most is going to be in a hot spot that needs it the most. Whereas Yarvin does take similar principles of how markets work and how cor corporations work, but his solution isn't to devolve the government powers to corporations so much as to evolve the government into a corporation that will act in such a way and not allow those sort of actors to buy and, and resell these goods, but the government to allocate it um, on, on its own. Right. And I think part of that too um, involves something that is uh, both that it's, I think at this point becoming pretty overwhelmingly clear to people on uh, both ends of the political spectrum that uh, are outsourcing of production and things like that to, to China's and other international overseas place to produce things for for cheap um is is not as good the projects of globalization may not be as uh as positive as the previous neoliberal neoconservative agenda has made it out to seem and it's become it's kind of coming back to bite us at this point with this crisis so with those sort of three both critiques and in turn insights into uh, what's wrong with American governance and also why it operates in the way it does. We have three major con con we also have three major concepts or solutions for how to emerge from this crisis and what life might look like afterwards.
Yeah, yeah. So the, the first one we're going to talk about in our next episode is going to be accelerationism, uh, which is a really, really fascinating idea. Uh, Curtis Yarvin, who we were talking about earlier, is one of the major uh, proponents of one type of it. Um, part of the issue in a way with accelerationism, which we'll get into more next time, is that people are often uh, really not meaning the same thing when they use that term. Um, but generally it refers to a... Um, uh, movement founded in uh, based around sort of the ideas of uh, this uh, English philosopher Nick Land um, based in Marxism and post-structuralist theory that believes that capital capitalism in its current form is bad but all of the things that also make it bad can be uh, exacerbated in such a way to advance it to a sort of post-capitalist hyper-technological space um, that is the best possible system. Um, So sort of using capitalism to to not necessarily get rid of capitalism, that's not exactly what what all of them are going for, and uh, I think Nick Land especially, but to move beyond uh, the the late capitalist space that we find ourselves in. Yeah, um, maybe, hopefully a useful way of thinking about it. Uh, there, There is sort of one branch of more leftist accelerationism, that if uh, capitalism and the market is an engine, they are trying to rev it as hard and as fast as possible to try and get it to blow up uh, so that we are stuck in one spot and have to reconceptualize the world around us uh generally through a a marxist or um eco-socialist sort of framework and only by accelerating our um use of, of capitalism can we break it down sufficiently to move past it whereas another sort of branch of accelerationism um might be trying to push uh, the capitalistic engine as hard as possible and rev it to the point where it's like the Millennium Falcon hitting light speed or something. That uh, suddenly if we just do enough and do it with enough fervor, uh, we might be able to overcome capitalism and get get to a, without necessarily breaking it down, but emerge past it. It's almost, uh, you know, and then sort of the, uh, Nick Land isn't even so much like trying to move past capitalism. I think, I think of him as sort of more on this sort of this less Marxist end of it. He literally wants to, uh, to merge with technology. He wants humans and machines to become inseparable. He wants us to advance the system to such a place where we have the technological capacity and, uh, economic space to literally, uh, move past humanity not capitalism yeah uh and and the uh another concept we'll be we'll be discussing in the episode after that uh will be post-liberalism and the different strands of that and post-liberalism in the sense of what would be able to come next after um a liberal democracy and most of the ideas and 
regimes that are being imagined uh, in this sphere are certainly much more authoritarian. Um, and some are authoritarian in what we might conceive of as more leftist or socialist, sometimes even Marxist ways, and some are much more authoritarian in ways that are uh, very much of the right and akin to, to fascist uh, states. And I think one of the really prominent um, thinkers that has provoked discussion over this uh, during the quarantine already has been Adrian Vermeule. Uh, with his essay in the Atlantic discussing um, a a constitutionalism based on common good. And while elements of his thought are innocuous and probably um, a lot of people would find agreeable, there are fears that this might step into... I mean, it truly would promote a much more authoritarian concept of government. And one of the ways we're seeing this played out is uh, in Hungary right now with uh, Viktor Orban, the country's leader, who is, I'm not sure if it's, I don't think it's been passed yet. Probably by the time of our next episode, it will have. Um, the country's legislature is working on providing him with indefinite, unlimited, emergency powers where where he can fully reshape the country as he sees fit to deal with this emergency um and those those represent sort of a a post-liberal concept of new governance and the last one we'll discuss in our final um episode of this series will be the the growing call for reformism uh this certainly the most by some measures, moderate uh, of uh, the solutions and approaches uh, to respond to the coronavirus crisis with, this really focuses on the incompetencies and uh, mistakes made by the government um, leading into this crisis. A really good article was written by Will Upton in American Mind uh, talking about autarky, which is uh, the need for a nation to be able to rely on production within its own borders for a case of emergency like this, where we might not be able to get medicines or masks or other things um, from the countries of origin. Currently, they're being produced in China. And and so an autarkatic system would be one where there's some production capacity saved saved domestically. And, And a lot of this is a lot of the reformism is fueled by a sense of trade nationalism and concerns over supply chain, um, and th- this appeals both to liberals and conservatives in the sense of uh, what is happening to labor, uh, organized labor, and both the profits for for capitalists and workers of uh, potential production capacity within the country. And additionally, there's a lot of um, folks working in this sphere in terms of international affairs and the international order with people like Thomas Wright, Nadia Shadlow, um, even Ben Rhodes, all recently contributing to the Atlantic, discussing about ways to 
reform the the international order. Yeah, a lot of this is pretty similar to the more uh, sort of populist ends of mainstream American politics that have been brought up in the past five years or so between Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders, kind of uh, almost louder versions of what both of them have been saying um, that are now uh, sort of being uh, tailored to dealing with this crisis and the, the fallout from it in the future. Yeah, and we'll discuss further and see if it's consequence of the growing populism discussed and promoted by uh, Sanders and Trump, or uh, if this is sort of independent from. But it seems at the very least, as we emerge from this, American politics will be tinged much more by uh, populism, if not by some other currents of thought. Some other isms. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so... Uh, that's what we got for an overview of these concepts. Uh, thanks for listening. Stay tuned for the next uh, three parts in this series. Uh, coming up soon, we'll be talking about accelerationism. We really appreciate you listening. Uh, enjoy that you're on this journey with us. If you have any comments or questions or would like to leave a review, please do so or reach out to us on our website. Thank you very much.